understand I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. He's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. So far in the current series of Second Captain Saturday, we've had Senator George Mitchell talking about the fragile nature of peace in Northern Ireland. We've discussed climate change, Brexit, and Katrina Crow schooled Ken on the importance of history. And today's main guest is going to talk to us about darts. Yep, time to lighten the mood this morning. Welcome to the show. Hi, Murph. Hi, hey, Ken. Ud. How are you? The guest in question had apparently never been to a comedy gig before she decided to give it a go herself, but she obviously learns fast. You may well have watched her ripping it up on the big UK panel shows, 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, or Have I Got News For You. In 2010, she won the Best Newcomer Award at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. More recently, she's acted in Afterlife, the Ricky Gervais show on Netflix, and she's created, produced, and starred in the extremely funny sitcom Game Face, the second series of which is on Channel 4 at the moment, the superb Roisin Connolly is on the show today. Now, it's all our semi-final day at Croke Park, and as has become tradition, Mayo are in town. It's the eighth time this decade, that's right, isn't it? Eighth time yeah, this decade, they made it the last four. Eighth time, eighth time in nine years, on. As far as I know, they haven't gone on and won the whole thing just yet. <laughs> yes. I haven't been following them. Yeah, mostly. you're correct. <laughs> uh, you've, uh, you've, you have managed to pick up that tiny yeah, 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 piece yeah. of information yes. about the whole male narrative. They definitely, not word. 2015, didn't win? No, okay. No. All they have no. to do to make... It's been a while. All they have to do to make the final in 2019 is, you know, stop the greatest team of all time dead in their tracks before they can pick up their own five in a row. This has the feel of an All-Ireland final, doesn't it? I mean, the rush for tickets the hype around it, the epic rivalry between the teams who really don't seem to like each other very much. Yeah. Hearing, hearing reports this week of, if not them snubbing each other on all-star trips, they don't, they certainly don't go out of their way to, you know, Be share. Mixing cordially. To mix cordially at the, the breakfast table in the yeah. hotels and so on. Yeah. I, I just like those little bit of, those little details, that little frisson between the two. Yeah, I mean, Mayo lost the 2016 final by a point in a replay and yet before the 2017 final, 12 months later, less than 12 months after the replay, literally no one was tipping Mayo. I mean, it required an act of faith, blind faith to tip them. In a game, they ended up losing by a point again. So people expect this Mayo team to get a trimming from Dublin eventually because it seems like it must happen because Mayo keep almost losing to teams that would never in a million years get within 10 points <laughs> of Dublin. But that doesn't seem to mean anything in, the, in these games. Like That is the crazy, brilliant thing about this rivalry is that you know Mayo only run as fast as the dog that's chasing them? Uh, <laughs> what did you call the dubs? <laughs> but when it comes to Dublin, they have it in them to to yeah. really put it up. Yeah. That's why this is such an exciting game for everyone. So a county hold its breath, and none more so than Mike McCormick, author of Solar Bones, the winner of last year's top prize at the International Dublin Literary Awards. He's a Mayo man, a GA man, and a one-time opponent of Mayo GA royalty if our research is to be believed. Mike will help us mm-hmm. figure out what it's like to Opponent be... Opponent of Mayo GAA Royal. Yeah, he played against the oh, okay, GAA right. Sorry, maybe I needed <laughs> to be clear. Mayo He's not anti-Mayo oh, he Royal. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Makes more sense. It's Willie Joe Patton, Ken. I've just given it away now. Okay. But listen, we'll get into all that with, with Mike. He's going to try and help us figure out what it's like to be a Mayo football fan on weekends such as these as the All-Ireland Odyssey continues. That's coming up later, but it's Roisin Condi who will run the gauntlet of Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person, sports person competition. Murph, what are the current standings? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. 
Senator George Mitchell came out of the traps like a bullet from a gun in show one of the series and he still leads the way on 81 points. He's now prohibitive favourite to be crowned our greatest non-sports person sports person for 2019. But can the youthful exuberance of Rushing Connolly overtake John Simpson, Katrina Crow and Eamon McCann to take second place? We will find out very shortly on. That's the daunting total to be shot at today. If you want to get in touch on Second Captain Saturday, just tweet at Second Captains. Rushing Connolly's coming up right after some villagers. Took a little time to get where I wanted It took a little time to get free That's Villagers and the beautiful Courage. Our guest this morning is an award-winning comedian, writer and actor. She's currently starring in her own sitcom, Game Face, which you should be watching on Wednesday nights on Channel 4 if you aren't already. And she's here for one reason only, to take down Senator George Mitchell and become the 2019 Second Captain's Greatest Non-Sports Person, Sports Person, Roisin Connolly. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. How does it feel to finally, finally get an opportunity to knock the 85-year-old hero of Ireland, Senator George <laughs> Mitchell, off his perch? I, I cleared my diary to do this. When I heard there was a chance to bring him down, I cleared the day. <laughs> Listen, we know you have a massive Irish background, which we want to get into. I suppose the, the best way of setting this out is to ask you a hypothetical question. If you were picked to play international football, for both Ireland and England on the same day. You got a letter in the post from both football associates. I'm not sure why they're still sending letters in 2019. Just go with it on. A letter in the post. Which team are you going to line out for? Number one, I'm going to be really startled with those both of those <laughs> showing up. Um, it would be Ireland. Yes. It'll always be Ireland. Excellent. Some would say that you're just you're buttering us up so that we, you try and get the best no, score I'm possible. Irish. That's... I've got Irish parents. My, I'm, I was born in England, but you know, my dad used to say, "A cat born on a pillar doesn't make it a caterpillar." <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about that then. You're, you, how big a part of your childhood was the Irish side of things? It was huge, you know, both my parents are Irish. My mum's the only one on her side that moved to London. So we were in Ireland all the time, you know, all the summer holidays, Christmas. Uh, I lived in Ireland for a couple of years and my mum and dad split up when we were like seven. Well, not, not when they were seven, <laughs> when I was seven. Um, yeah, so it's huge, you know, like it's all my family are there and stuff. So, it might, you know, my, my, in England even, you know, I went to like Irish Catholic, well, not but Catholic schools, so loads of Irish parents and, you know, stuff like that. So it was a massive, massive part. You grew, you grew up in Camden, right? Was it a council mm-hmm. estate in Camden? Is that, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was in, uh, down near Euston, yeah. So you'd spend your time there and then you would holiday in Ireland, I guess. I mean, what was the contrast like between those two environments? I mean, like you know, London was in the 80s for a kid, Camden especially, all different types of people, like punks and, you know, goths, like just every colour in the noise and, you know, the different races and, you know, smells of different food. It was just very stimulating for a child. I'd get to Ireland and... <laughs> I just sort of get dumped in a field for six weeks, just sort of waiting for a car to go by. Um, it was uh, it was incredible. The shock was always incredible, but it was amazing. It was, you know, Ireland in the 80s is obviously very different to Ireland now, but it was um, it's a great way to have your childhood. You get the best of both worlds. And you know, all my cousins were over there. We were allowed to play out. 
they made me play out in the rain in Ireland. My aunt has never believed in kids being indoors. <laughs> so, like, even if there's, like, you know, pouring down, they're like, out and play. And I was like, but it's drizzling. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was lovely. Where was this? Where was, where was, where were most of these holidays? Um, Kerry yeah. uh, and Cork, mainly. So how many aunties and uncles are listening in this morning? I mean, what sort of um, numbers are we talking? Well, my mum has 12 sisters and my, and one brother, so, and uh, wow. my dad, five sisters and two brothers. So it's a big old, uh, <laughs> a lot of family. We, we are familiar with the, with the concept of large Irish families <laughs> rushing, don't worry. I've got triplet aunties. Oh, really? Triplet aunties, yeah. right, okay. Yeah, my nan was, had like nine kids and then had triplets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sort of childhood you talk about, doing nothing, being dumped in a field. When you yeah. look back at it now, I don't know, maybe also with the contrast of what you had in Camden, was it quite good for a kid? Was it good for you specifically, do you think, in terms of... Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. I think being bored is so important for children. And I say that with, like, you know, like, you had to sort of find your own fun and stuff. There wasn't, it was just, you know, it was really good for my, for my mind. I, even now, I really crave it. Like, I have, like, I can be really busy in London and I have to go to Ireland just quieten down. Like, I, I think if you're raised like that, it's like I can't just do London the whole time. Um uh, it's really good. I think, you know, kids should be bored. It's good for your imagination. A, a few years ago, my cousin, um, well, my cousin's daughter, she was 12. She had a laptop on her lap, a phone in her hand, TV, like sky on. She was like, I'm so bored. I was like, you have no idea what boredom is. <laughs> you know, like literally, I was so bored in Ireland once I, in my aunt's house. I read The Godfather, aged 11. Um, <laughs> it was the only book that I could get my hands on. But it was beautiful bored, you know, that nap, like long, lazy days, you know. And I, obviously it was before the internet and stuff as well. So it wasn't just Ireland. It was just, the, you know, the world was a bit more boring. But, you know, being in scenic, beautiful countryside, and um, it been a bit, a bit. It was obviously a lot safer, so it just had a lot more freedom to go, you know, roam in the fields. What do you think are the advantages of boredom, though, Russian? I mean, I'm, I remember that feeling, you know, before you could like look at the internet on your phone and say you forgot to bring a book on the bus, and just the intense, the intense boredom and suffocation that would settle in um, as as you sat there with nothing, no company but your own thoughts. <laughs> Why do you want to go back to that? <laughs> I don't want to go back to it full time, but I think for children and even for adults, I think it's really good for creativity. I think it's really good to, for, your, for a child, for their imagination. I think being bored just sort of feels like children's lives are curated from morning to night now. The second they have like nothing to do, someone's driving them somewhere or whatever. And I just think that maybe there should be a little bit of space for a child to like, you know, just have imaginary worlds and, you know, just explore and stuff. But it's very good for creativity and writing. Like there's this thing, you know, sometimes I look like, you know, my sister would be like, you're not writing today because I'm staring out the window or just pottering around. But I'm like, that's me writing. <laughs> you're like, I look like I'm doing nothing. I need to get bored. Like my brain needs to clear, you know, that's how you write. You, you know, when you're constantly on your phone and being similar, you're not do, you can't be creative. There was a bit of excitement though, wasn't there, Roshan? There was a bit of drama around a christening in Kerry at one stage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so when I was, my cousin, um, my cousin was getting christened, my baby cousin and uh, her older sister, my other cousin, Sabrina, I found out she was allowed to wear a suit to the christening, like a bow tie and stuff. And this was like radical. And I was like, oh my God, what, you know, and I was obsessed with Sabrina, so I just copied whatever she did. Um, and so I sort of wore this not very stylish outfit, made my mum let me wear a sort of like a boy's outfit. I don't know use that word. Um, uh, boys in quotes 
But I went to a, uh, hairdressers <laughs> on my own with my pocket money, a barber's, in fact, not even a, a woman's hairdresser, a barber's, and asked them to give me a long hair at the back and spikes on top, like Pat Sharp. Uh, <laughs> and he gave it to me. I was seven years old. He gave it to me, and, uh, and, uh, and also, like, the, I had enough money for the haircut and to buy a big, massive tub of blue gel that I used to call my spike gel. Um, and then I showed up to my mother's uh, that evening with uh, just a, a, basically a mullet, uh, seven years old. Uh, with a uh, short back and sides at the side and long hair at the back like and my mum laughed for so she swore at me and then she laughed for so long that I cried um pretty bold of me to be fair the Pat Sharp haircut is one of the you know one of the definitive 1980s looks at least <laughs> yeah I mean it's quite something for a seven I, I quite admire that I was quite independent like that when we lived in Kerry once I wanted to see Bigfoot and my mum didn't want to see it and uh and I was like I'm, I'm talking about seven years old and I was on my way home from school and I went into the cinema and I bought a ticket for the 9.20pm showing a Bigfoot one ticket um <laughs> and they gave me the ticket I felt like I had loads of money all the time I didn't it was just my pocket money <laughs> yeah. but um the one thing I knew my mum hated more than you know was losing money so I knew she'd go because uh so 9.20 I got out of bed and then I was oh I'm going to the cinema and she was like what but she gave me that like, <laughs> Me. <laughs> I love this Bigfoot, the Godfather, uh, Pat yeah. Sharp. I mean, this sounds like. Presumably, you were marched back down to the hairdresser, though. I, I remember suffering that fate when I came back home, having been given my five quid for a haircut, arrived back home. I think I was going for the undercut, which was in fashion at the time. Oh, yeah. But it looked more like I could never quite pull it off, so it was more like a big mushroom bowl-looking shape. <laughs> Either way, my mum didn't like it, and I was... Uh, this marched. was only last week, yeah. This was a couple <laughs> of weeks ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. So were you marched back down, can you remember? No, I wasn't. No. It was. I, I had such a, a thick head of hair on me. If you cut the back off, then I still just had a head full of spikes. <laughs> it was the top of my... There was nothing to cut it, you know. It had to grow out, and it, it just took ages. You mentioned in passing there, Roisin, that your parents split up, and that's why you ultimately lived in Ireland for a while. I mean, as lovely as it might have been at times living in the country, it was rural Catholic Ireland in the 1980s and I'm presuming attitudes to your mum being a single parent back then were quite different attitudes in London? Yeah, I think it was a little bit like that. She had lots of friends and stuff. I don't want to make out like there were people horrible or anything like that, but, it, you know, Ireland was a conservative country there is. Um, very conservative so there wasn't that much you know she was a single mum and I think that wasn't the easiest thing to be in sort of rural Kerry um yeah so I think she you know probably felt that more over there than she would have over here um it was a good place for my, you know to sort of go and you know I suppose my mum to try and you know lick her wounds and stuff um you always go home, don't you, when you're heartbroken or when things go wrong, you know, and I think she wanted to be with her family and stuff. Um, but ultimately, I think she sort of built her life over here by that stage and realised, you know, she wanted to come back. Your dad passed away, sadly, in his early 50s, and this was before you were working in comedy. I believe his passing had quite an effect on you and your attitudes to just really going for things, to going for your career as a stand-up. Maybe you could explain that to us a little bit. Whenever you, you ever... You, you know, you lose someone that close. I think you have, you have the clearest perspective. Maybe you know it's the worst thing that you can go through, and it's painful, and all of the grief is never goes in certain areas. But there is a clarity of what counts, I suppose, and you realise that life is short, and that what matters, and. Yeah, so I found it fearless. It took fear yeah. away because the worst thing had happened and therefore the idea of a gig being like, oh, this definitive thing, like, oh, if it goes badly, how will I cope? I was like, well, I can cope with a lot worse than that. So, and it wasn't conscious. I didn't consciously think that at the time, but it's only afterwards when you look back, you think, oh yeah, I was kind of fearless. And I think a lot of people who get into stand-up, you know, I wouldn't say 
everyone, but there is normally a turning, whether a heartbreak or a loss or a, a sort of thing that makes you think it doesn't matter if this goes badly. It, it's not real. It's not like a real thing that I've had that you've experienced. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Fear will ruin you 10 times a day, you know. It's, of course, people are talented, but I think there's so much um, fear around pursuing what we want to do because if it doesn't work and, you know, you've said it out loud and if you're not good at it and all of it is about perception of you and, and, you, and your fear about what will people think about me if I say I'm going to try this thing and then I'm not good at it, what will people think about me? And, you know, no one really cares. Everyone's living their own life. But I think fear is... That's the biggest thing, you know, to choose a life is to overcome your, you know, self-imposed ideas about what you can do and what you're allowed to do and how the feeling that you won't cope if it doesn't go well. And, you know, once you sort of go, you can cope, you can cope with a bit of shame that it wasn't good. <laughs> you can cope, if, you know, you tried your hardest and it didn't come out. But what you can't cope with is the feeling of never trying. And, you know, there isn't any safe bets. And that's a really, I think that thing, you think you can choose a safe life. Yeah. And actually, there's no safe jobs anymore. There's no safe... You know, like the idea that if you if you sort of choose choose carefully and, and you know, try and avoid danger and, you know, that you can somehow avoid pain and suffering and shame in your life, you can't. It's going to show up anyway, so you might as well do the thing you want. You said before I couldn't believe how much the comedy became the love of my life and it saved my life in so many ways. I felt like I'd finally found my people. So who are your people, Roisin? Comedians. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid question, We're I suppose. Yeah, we're a different breed, I guess, I suppose, in the way... I always think it's like a diagnosis <laughs> in a stand-up. I don't think you can learn it. It's so hard at the beginning. It is quite gruelling. And the idea that you want to do it again after some of the gigs you've had is mad. But, yeah, I just... I find stand-ups endlessly fascinating I think um I just feel like whenever I'm around stand-up comics I feel these are my guys <laughs> is that partly because you hadn't been as far as I know you'd never been to a stand-up show before you actually tried it out for yourself so this was something that you came at completely fresh was it like just this incredible discovery this whole new world yeah so I hadn't I'd watched so much comedy I had watched lots of you know DVDs and you know like and my mum had loads of Irish DVDs like Brendan Grace and people like that so I had lots of you know people telling jokes and stuff um, well, my friend Danielle just said to me, you should do stand-up one night. We weren't even talking about anything. It was just I was sort of a bit lost, not really knowing what to do. But, yeah, I think when I did the first gig, I was so stunned because I thought the way I sort of looked at it was whatever happens, it's a funny story on a night out. If I said that time, I tried stand-up. And immediately I sort of came off and I was like, it was like adrenaline rush, but also that many people laughing. I'll chase that forever. I know that feeling now. <laughs> um, and it felt, yeah, I felt like I'd found something that was important in the same way when you fall in love and you meet someone and you know they're going to matter. I mentioned Game Face earlier on in Channel 4. The final two shows of Series 2 are being broadcast on a double bill this Wednesday at 10 o'clock so people can check that out. They should check that out and also watch the previous episodes on all four. You create this, you wrote it, obviously. It's, this is your baby to say the least. You produce it, star in it, involved in the editing. We interviewed Sharon Horgan about Catastrophe last year and she said that she broke down crying when they they were doing the final read through of the last series that they were doing i think she broke down again when they were filming the final scene so she was she, yeah i know she just said she was so emotionally invested in the thing that it, it you know it felt like a really sad uh, part of her life to be almost saying goodbye to to the to, to what she had built do you feel the same kind of emotional attachment 
Yeah, it's, it's intense. It's no, it's it's so intense. I think Game Face has been long, so long in the run. I, I feel very protective of everyone in the show, you know, the, all the characters and stuff like that. Like, they feel very real to me. And yeah, you feel like this is, you know, like Marcella is, I, she's very, she's a different, you know, she's not me. And I know people that sounds sort of like disassociative, but she's not. And so I feel really protective of her. And yeah, so it feels quite sad when you sort of get to the end of a thing and you're like, oh yeah, like this is this person that I've spent all my time in my head with these characters they've been in my head for like you know last year relentlessly you know then you finish it and it goes out and you know and it's done you say she's not you how Mm. how strict have to be about keeping it not being overly autobiographical is that something that evolves as the writing progresses um yeah i just uh, autobiographical i think uh I couldn't write. Like, I've got a sister. My dad's dead. My dad was a quietly spoken man. <laughs> like, not, you know, very, very funny. But like, this is based more on, like, on uncles. You know, like, you combine things. So then you're able to write freely. Do you know what I mean? Like, so you go, they, these are creations. Versions. Everyone's got versions of people that you know. And, and little bits, because that's what you draw in your own life and stuff that you're growing up with. But I think... I just don't think I could... I think actually it's more honest because it's not autobiographical. If it's autobiographical, I'd feel very protective of the people involved in the story. You're listening to the Irish comedian and writer Roisin Condi on Second Captains this morning. It's time to talk about her sporting life and particularly her darting life after these. Second Captain, first Captain, whatever. Roisin Connolly is our brilliant guest this morning on Second Captain Saturday. She's one of our favourite comedians, creator and star of Game Face on Channel 4. She's also available for selection for all Irish international teams and niece of 23 Irish uncles and aunts who I presume will be listening to RT Radio 1 this morning, including all three of her triplet aunties. Now on to sport, Roisin, you come from Cavan and Kerry stock, so was the family involved in GAA? Um, my dad definitely was when he was young. I, when my dad died, we brought him back to Ireland to be buried. And um, we got to Cavan quite late and uh, we were going up sort of this um, hill to this church and it was dark and all these men were lining the road. And I was like, who are these men, mum? <laughs> my uncle sort of said to my mum, was he in the IRA? <laughs> <laughs> It was very dark and very late. And there was just a little bit of panic of like, whoa, 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 what's happening? Like that. It was very funny. Then we got in and they, they, they had the, the jersey and stuff. They, um, you know, the colour. Uh, and uh, it was his football team. It was his GA team. So we were fine. It's a relief. <laughs> now you have got some talent yourself. I know you're going to be too modest to expand on this without me throwing it at you so I will say that the talent lies in the most respected of all sporting arenas the darts hockey I mean it's very seldom we have actual footage to look at when it comes to the sporting achievements of our guests but have a listen to this everyone this is Let's Play Darts on BBC's Sport Relief a big celebrity darts match on TV against Bob Mortimer and Roisin needs a double 20 to win it Over to you Roisin a double top away from the semi-finals still 2 Oh she's done it Rasheed has done it, the match winner. She's been nowhere, but she finds the dark that matters. Can you believe it? It's Rasheed through to the semi-finals. I'm not sure if I'm more impressed by the fact that you pulled out a double top under that kind of pressure or by the fact your nickname is the Wedding Slinger. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It was mad. I just, it was, it was so mad. And the audience took it so seriously. 
it was one of those things. Um, it was just one of those lucky ones, you know. But you, I will always get one like that. I always because I think that's the thing. I, I don't give up in sports, so like I'm, I'm a bit of a nightmare if it's like a thing like that where I will get <laughs> something lucky and like ruin the game for the person who's actually good. Um, but yeah, it was brilliant. Well, a lot of us have tried to play darts in the pub and the pressure doesn't get any bigger than the fact that, you know, you're trying not to make a complete idiot of yourself in front of the seven or eight other people in the pub. So to throw a double 20 on live national television, I mean, I've, I've got to hold my hands up and say massive respect there. That is quite, uh, quite something. Thank you very much. I mean, I had, if you watch the earlier footage, I was throwing the darts. They weren't even like, they were just bouncing, like no way near... They were just like around the wall. They weren't even going on onto the dartboard. <laughs> so it looked like I really needed exit. I think the audience thought I was like joking. So I was so bad. I think they were like, oh, she's is she trying to be funny? This is frustrating. She's just throwing darts like a joke. And I was like, no, I'm actually, I'm really trying to hit this dartboard and I can't even hit the dartboard. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was really good. It was just, yeah, it was lovely because all the darts players are such, we're really, the comedians sat down and listened to them. <laughs> just mad the maddest like road stories i've ever like you know and i know a lot of comics and i know a lot of people i think it was i don't know it was bobby george bought a boat he asked someone to buy him a boat someone said he was gonna buy a boat but it was a ferry and it ended up, <laughs> i mean it was just they were like mad especially from the like 80s and 90s big old crazy stories crazy is it true that you have a deep passion for sports movies yeah, that's a, that's that for me is a pinnacle of sports. You get to you get all the you get all the fun of winning and losing, all the adrenaline, all the while you've got popcorn in your hand. So you're getting to live the best of both worlds, and then you get the quintessential sports movie speech. That is uh. absolutely the best of sports. It, it, you, it, you sort of feel sad when you don't get one, you know, and you watch a sports movie and then no one makes a big speech. You're like, oh. What was the point okay. of that? Like, no one's going to do a big speech. They're just going to sort of win or whatever. Yeah, I uh, I love them. I, all of them. Like, Mighty Ducks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that. <laughs> The Al Pacino one, Any Given Sunday, is absolutely phenomenal. I also watched that when I was in Edinburgh in 2010 before gigs. No. <laughs> yeah. That means that you have uh, something in common with literally every GA team in Ireland because it's the biggest cliche in the world that you play this clip before uh, before a big game or something and it's supposed to fire you up. Like, like you have uh, a lot in common with the multimillionaires that uh, Al Pacino is speaking to in that particular dressing room. <laughs> Exactly, you claw with your fingernails. Um, it's, it's so because they're always about life, aren't they? Like you don't give up when things are down, you know that sort of thing. Um, I just love a good, I just love a good pep talk. I've always loved a good pep talk. Have you ever given one yourself in your own sporting career? Do you know what I was invited back to? That was one of the reasons why my friends. I was invited back to my school to give a speech to the school leavers, and um, this is when I'd just gone through a breakup. I'd moved home. I was turning thirty, and I had like, I think maybe like 300 pound in my account to my name. And like, but my auntie was a dinner lady at the school and she obviously was sort of making out I was doing very well. And they invited me to come and give a speech to talk about my success. <laughs> and I was like, is this a joke? This felt like a joke. But then I wrote my first Edinburgh show, Hero, Warrior, Fireman, Liar, about that. And then I won the award in Edinburgh. Um, so sports-wise, when I was a kid, we, I was in a netball team and we were terrible, really bad. Um, 
but we were on our way to play a game one day and I'd obviously watched one of these films and I started giving a pep talk uh, on the coach on the way there and I could see everyone, like a, you know, a real performer, I could get everyone's attention. I was like, this is brilliant. So I gave, I was like, we've got to try our hardest and Miss Andrews was our uh, sort of, you know, netball coach. I was like, we've got to do it for Miss Andrews. She's given us our time, blah, blah. And I gave this big speech and everyone was like, yeah. And then we got there and lost so badly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's when I first realised that you, you can't just have the speech. You need to actually be good at what you're doing. <laughs> All right, Roshan, before we give you a score here and see if you can achieve your dream of taking down Senator George Mitchell, you do have to give us a sporting highlight, please. It sounds like, well, I mean, the darts is pretty high up there. Anything else you want to throw at us? When we were young, Irish, Ireland, Italia, and Ireland were playing Italy, yeah. and my mum cooked spaghetti bolognese, not thinking, and my uncle got... <laughs> Walked out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, because he was disgusted. She'd made spaghetti bolognese uh, when, the, when the match was against her. And he like, genuinely uh. was trying to make out that my mum had jinxed the game. Oh, well. Well, that is, I mean, that, that, that's good enough for me. The time has now come, please, Murph, to rank this sporting life of Roshan Condi. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Roisin, some scores for you to keep in mind before we begin here. The season's leader <laughs> is Senator George Mitchell, as we've been saying, on 81 points. And your mate, Ashling B, scored 78 points last year. So it's time for me to calculate your score out of That was a winner last year, wasn't it? Was Ashling B the winner? It was indeed, yeah. yeah. Taking into account your all-time sporting highlight and the sports person you most remind me of. And we'll see if you can top either of those. Now, you've already suggested that your all-time sporting highlight is spaghetti bolognese related. Uh, but really, <laughs> how can we look past throwing a double top to win a darts tournament against Andy the Vi- Viking Fordham and Bob Mortimer. We've heard the clip. I've watched it back. It's the sort of nerveless display of accuracy that you'd expect from former snooker legend Steve Davis, a cold-eyed, remorseless sports killer. And I know what you're thinking. Steve Davis, he was really boring. Well, Rushin, it may actually surprise you to discover that Steve Davis is a techno DJ now and has even played a set at Glastonbury. So his street cred is beyond reproach. So for all that... It's 76 points for Roisin Connolly. Oh. And this has been your sporting... Roisin. Two points behind Ashling B. We, we can only apologise. Oh, I can't believe this happened to me. <laughs> it's devastating. A round of applause, please, for the brilliant Roisin Connolly. Thank you, Roisin. Thank you so much. Hey, tune from Fontaine's DC there that's the second song we've played from the album Dogrel this series that's because well they're really good it's a great album they've since been nominated for Mercury Prize and two of their members are from Mayo in fact you might have seen their bassist Connor Deegan yes. knocking around the place yes, he so wears a fairly manky Mayo 96 jersey on <laughs> like, stage have you seen it? I mean it's I don't even think it's 96 I mean I'm. it's kind of like a pre you know uh, Mayo losing all Ireland finals as a matter of course every couple of years kind of era you know there's like there are players in my mind that never played in an Ireland final at all for Mayo that 
for whatever reason, I picture them wearing this jersey. I mean, it really, you're talking about 92, <laughs> 93 kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I, I can only hold my hands up and applaud. He went, Gen Fit. He went for the Mayo tracksuit bottoms on tonight with Jimmy Fallon as well. <laughs> the whole way for that one there. So we, we applaud Conor Deegan. Yeah. Many, many people will be making the journey across the country in such attire today. But, and we will be asking about that in just a second. But thanks again to the brilliant Roisin Condi, who is our main guest this morning. If Dublin win today, they're one game away from becoming the first county in the 135-year history of the GAA to win five All-Ireland titles in a row. And yet everyone's talking about Mayo. Everyone, including us, we're about to talk more Mayo now. Mm. Why is that? I, I, What's with the anti-Dublin bias in the <laughs> mainstream media? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's anti-Dublin, but just after a while, winning gets a little, you know... Boring. <laughs> well, listen, Mayo fans, we're about to reflect on some painful times, so you might want to turn us down for the next 40 seconds or so. You have been warned. I did warn you, didn't I? I warned you to turn it down. You want to talk about bias, by the way? How about the Midwest radio commentary team? Yeah, well, you know, you should probably keep in mind that I think it was Martin Carney was talking to the Irish Times uh, last week before Mayo played Donegal. He was talking about his work with Midwest Radio and he was saying that he, it's, you're, it's not just that you're allowed to be biased yeah. on local radio country, <laughs> but that you're <laughs> expected to be biased. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think is actually fair enough. I mean, it's pretty much part of the, the job spec here. Some pretty harrowing, harrowing memories there, in a, in a sporting sense, you know. Worst things are happening in life, but mm. some tough ones there for Mayo fans. There's so much, they've played each other so many times, Dublin Mayo, and Mayo have had so many of these heartbreaking moments against Dubs and other teams that I'm trying to even pick out those clips. That yep. Killian O'Connor miss free. The, so the, the last clip you heard there was yeah. uh, uh, Killian O'Connor's miss free right at the end of the 2016 final replay. Yeah. So Killian had hit an amazing, ridiculous, best clutch point I've ever seen a player kick in the last minute to force yeah, the replay. Yeah, yeah. Like an insanely good point. And then he missed a free with the last kick of the game in the replay to force it to extra time. Uh, and then, so they come back from that the following year, 2017, and they lose, you know, the best all Iron final I've seen um, in the last 30 years by one point. In the process, they score more points in that they, their total of 116 was the highest total ever put up by a losing team in an Ireland final but I thought they always freeze on All-Ireland final day see this is it like, they haven't actually frozen on All-Ireland final day since 2006 now that's not to say that crazy crazy things have happened to Mayo teams on All-Ireland final day I mean there have been t- two own goals and I've literally I've never seen one own goal in a football game and Mayo scored two inside five minutes of an All-Ireland final. <laughs> like, it is just ridiculous what has happened to this Mayo team. You know, they just keep coming back. I mean, they've delivered sensational, unbelievable performances on big days. It just hasn't ha- quite happened for them yet. I mean, I have every expectation they will play brilliantly again this evening. Yep. But 
Will it be enough? Will it be enough? That's the question. We're going to Lewisburg to chat to Mike McCormick now in a second, author of a book you've been raving about in the office, I have to say, Murph. Yeah, well, Solar Bones, for me, the best Irish book of the last 10 or 15 years. Oh, yeah? Uh, It is just such a brilliant piece of work. Uh, It's one sentence, uh, no punctuation, or no full stop, from uh, page one to the final page, but it is just sensational I love it so I love the fact that we're talking to Mike this morning if there's anything I enjoy more on weekends such as these and cracking open the psyche of Mayo football and having a good old look inside I've yet to find it Mike McCormick author of Solar Bones and Mayo Man thanks for chatting to us on this day of all days Mike you're welcome how are the nerves first of all oh very nervous very nervous (laughs) very nervous full of expectation and um, up for a great battle today the main character in uh, that magnificent novel that we just referenced there Solar Bones Marcus Conway he described Mayo in the book as a penal colony. Uh, is this familiarity with penance necessary to understand Mayo's addiction to football <laughs> and to the suffering attendant with Mayo football? Well, when that passage was written in the book, I, I looked back on it and, and um, he, he was just speaking about the landscape of Mayo and the psychic place that Mayo is. And when I had it written and that, it, it came together in my mind with football Um and uh, basically what, what Marcus says in the book is that Mayo is a place for penance and atonement. Uh, you don't come to Mayo to do celebrations, victories, jubilation, things like that. You come to atone for your sins. And, and he points out that unlike virtually every other county in Ireland, Mayo is crossed and blistered with penitential shrines. You have uh, Knock. Uh, Knock Shrine, you have the Reach, which is just out, just over the road from me, and you have uh, the Prayer House in Ackle, and on and on it goes. There's all these pilgrim paths and places of atonement, and um, that seems to be a unique thing, something unique to Mayo. There, there, there are such places all over, in counties all over Ireland, but there's an unusual density of them uh, in Mayo. Marcus seems to think that uh, this is not a place where where certain moods and triumphs would uh, would thrive. Is there an idea that su- success is un-Mayo-like? That's what he seems to think. Uh, he seems to think that it's not the place for it to... It, it's just inimical to us. It's just something that we cannot get our, uh, get our heads around on that. Uh, now, I think Mayo football has shown itself to, to be... You know, this is an extraordinary Mayo team. I think we know in our hearts that they're maybe the greatest Mayo team we've ever put out, but history won't allow that until they, history won't concede that until they bring home a Celtic cross with them. But no more than any religion as well, and football is a religion in Mayo, um, sort of almost millennial figures rise up in Mayo football. In all the generations of me watching it, I've seen a generation of messianic figures around which teams have been built and around which millennial expectations have, have gathered. Like I can look back as far as Willie Joe Padden, one of the greatest midfielders ever to pull a ball down out of the sky. Um, I actually played with, against Willie Joe when I was a, a minor and that he was coming towards the end of his career and that. And uh, I always remember seeing yeah. him marvelling that he was actually quite a small bloke, but he had a big, <laughs> huge pair of shoulders on him and a fierce lep out of him. Um, did you do a job on him, Mike? We, we need more detail there. Did you do a man-marking job? <laughs> yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I soared up above Willie Joe. <laughs> <laughs> in my dreams, in my dreams. But then, remember then that, that baton of expectation passed from him. Remember it passed to Porrick Brogan. When I was playing football, Brogan was already a legend. 
you know, at the age of 16 and 17. Again, there was massive hopes built around him. Colin McManaman, and then it passed on to uh, Kieran McDonald was the was the last golden figure almost to to uh, feature at the centre of a Mayo team, and um, all these people came up showed up in Croke Park and did something extraordinary. You know, people still talk about Park Brogan's goal. Kieran McDonald, Kieran McDonald shows up in Croke Park with his hair done up in cornrows and kicks you know a brace of points which are almost inconceivable. I remember actually being right to his back as he scored that point against Dublin, which uh, which put them into the lead in the in the semi-final. What year was that? 2006, uh, yeah. We are susceptible to these astonishing feats and that. Uh, one of the things about this Mayo team, which I think is extraordinary, is that there doesn't seem to be any character like that on that Mayo team uh, that's going and is togging out later this evening. There's just a, a more, they seem to be more democratic the allocations of their skills, and they don't have they don't have one of these charismatic millennial figures around which all our hopes and expectations are built. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just something different from every other every other male team that I've put my faith in over over the last you know since I was a child. It maybe it must be a good thing in ways in that uh, you know fan bases and there are none more fevered than the Mayo fan base. You know, when they pin all their hopes on one man, one man can be stopped. It's not you know, it's, yeah. devo- it's faith, faith and devotion. That's what, <laughs> that's what we go in for. <laughs> not belief. Okay, yeah. <laughs> they have this extraordinary longevity, and um, people have bonded with them. People have seen them. You know, people have seen them going up the Via Dolorosa, Crook Park, what we call Golgotha, and <laughs> the, the Garden of Schools, and um, seen them seen them suffer there, and um, we we admire them for it. Uh, for the way they have come back time and time again, for the way they 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 have uh, shown themselves to be, you know, incredibly tenacious, fearless, full of monastic re- resilience, and that to to keep coming back like this. The references throughout have been heavily religious, and you've said that fo- football is a religion in Mayo. Everyone is brought up in the faith. Yes. <laughs> so is there is there a day of of reckoning coming. I mean, I'm not. I'm not talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but perhaps the second now, coming. I have a good feeling about what's going to happen this evening. I think. I think that this team genuinely can beat beat Dublin this evening. Uh, Dublin. I, I. I could be wrong, but I don't think Dublin have played a serious game of championship football since the All Ireland final of 2017. Mm. That they've that they've met teams that they've beaten in fourth gear. In that they've racked up huge scores. Where Mayo have this year alone have played. Two probably the two best games of football of this year have been Mayo have won probably the league final and the game against uh, the game against Donegal last week. So I think Mayo are very. I think this is a very battle hardened team, and it's it's probably the question is has that battle hardness has it has it brought its own kind of fatigue with it and that we'll see we'll see this evening. I have a good feeling though. I have a very good feeling. How all consuming are days like this? That's a better way of asking. Is, is there anything else that affects the mood in Mayo like? Football on days like this. No, you look at politics, and you look at what, what you look at politics. Nothing will consume us. Nothing will focus our attention. Uh, nothing will keep us awake at night. Like our our passion for football or devotion, or it just goes back so bread in the bone, uh, a fundamental part of your life, and that you didn't wonder at it or marvel at it. It was just your life. I was going to say, Oshin McConville. Um, was we were talking to him during the week on the podcast and he made the point that the legacy of this Mayo team is secure. Whatever happens over the next few weekends 
and whatever happens over the next couple of years, he, he feels they don't even need to win an All-Ireland now. They're already going to go down as, as a great team. Is it easy for somebody uh, open our mouth with an All-Ireland medal in their pocket to say something like that? I think that's, that's both accurate and generous of him on that because I think they are a great team. If history is just a deal in stats, it, w- it won't concede that. But we know that history is much more than stats, that it's about other type of feeling, involvement, other types of achievement in that. And this team has been extraordinary. They've brought passion, skill, commitment to the championship year on year. I think last year we saw how after they, they were knocked out by Kildare. And I think that, that for a lot of people, not just Mayo people, that a, a certain colour went out of the championship after that. They bring with them real virtues. And they, and I think like every other Mayo team, they play to the highest virtues of the game. We, you know, they've done us proud. Uh, and it would, it would be shocking. And it would be shocking and history would shortchange them if they don't come away with Celtic crosses, some of those players that are playing. They've been very unfortunate in that they've run up against the best team of the last 50 years, yeah. uh, maybe the greatest uh, GA football team. I'd say there's a few dubs who've been man-marked by Lee Keegan who might dispute the highest virtues <laughs> line there, Mike. But listen, you're entitled to it. Lee will have a good game to see. It's good to see him back. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. In, he's in flying form as well on that. All right. You know, I think there, you, you know, you're going to have things like, you know, there's Lee Keegan coming back and um, would it be amazing to see Tom Parsons coming on with 15 minutes to go and him carrying the ball out of midfield with that curly head on him and that loping stride on him and that. Uh, he's, he's uh, you know, Tom was just at the peak of his abilities just when he went down with that horrible, horrible injury and that. And now he's back and, and uh, he's apparently champing at the bit to get going and that. Those are wonderful, brilliant, involving stories and that. And uh, they fill our soul with joy and admiration uh, for them. Beautifully put. And I love the confidence, Mike McCormick. Great to talk to you and enjoy the game today. Will do. Take care. A bullish Mike McCormick there. Sounds to me like the semi-finals in the bag. It's just whether they can take out Kerry or Tyrone in the final. Is it even worth the dubs turning up, Ken, I ask myself? I'm not too worried about it, Owen. <laughs> You're all right. You're uh, a proud Dublin man, of course, Ken, we should say from the outset. You are a biased observer here. A serene uh, supporter of Dublin football. I mean, I considered the five and all already in the bag. <laughs> so the only question for me is if it doesn't happen... Which heads are going to roll? <laughs> Jim Cavan yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, we've got to wrap things up, but if you fancy getting behind some independent broadcasting during the week, just have a look at what we do on secondcaptains.com. We're back here next Saturday morning with Emmett Kerwin. Marion Finucane is up next. Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produce the show. Thank you to Killian Down for researching. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thank Thanks, Ken. Um, thank you, girl. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the match today. Second camp, first camp, whatever. They never got home, does it? Just those boys.